1998, a Norwegian couple become the victims of several sinister attacks, some of which the police believe are assassination attempts. Questions are soon raised as to whether or not these terrifying events are in any way connected to the couple's choice of career or if they are of a more personal nature. And just a year or so later, when three people end up dead, executed in the couple's own home, the hunt for the killer or killers begins. This is Nordic True Crime. Per Paust was a Norwegian diplomat who was born in 1943. Throughout his career, he worked as the press spokesperson for the Foreign Affairs Office in Norway during the 1980s and would even go on to serve as an ambassador delegate at the Norwegian Embassy in Washington, D.C. Per was married to Anne Ordrud Paust, who was the personal secretary to the Norwegian Minister of Defence. So to say that Per and Anne were somewhat of a power couple wouldn't exactly be an understatement. On the evening of the 2nd of March 1997, Per and Anne were driven home by some colleagues after having spent the evening together. It was late, around 1.30am in the morning, so the street in front of their house was, as most would expect it to be, quiet and dark. The only other person they could see was a man who was slowly walking towards them. As he approached the couple, without saying a word and totally unprovoked, the man grabbed hold of Per's tie and threw him to the ground. He then began to kick him in the head and all over his body. Anna tried to help her husband by striking the attacker with her purse, hoping that he would give up and leave but it only made him turn his attention towards her, and he proceeded to punch Anne several times in the face. Per's colleagues had by this time noticed that something wasn't quite right and had reversed their car back towards their friend's house. Two bystanders had also seen the commotion and rushed towards the scene of the attack. Suddenly, the assailant stopped the frenzied attack and walked away from its victims stopping by the crossroads further down the street. He stood there for a while, and then suddenly turned around and walked back towards Per, Anne, their colleagues and the two witnesses. It seemed as though he was returning to finish what he had started. But as he approached the scene of the crime, he calmly and slowly walked on by, as if nothing had happened, making his way further down the road until he was out of sight. Sometime later, the police arrived at Per and Anna's house and took witness statements from everyone. 
the attacker was completely unknown to the couple, which was going to make it difficult for the police from the outset. And strangely, even although the police had taken the names and numbers of the two witnesses who had happened to walk by at the time of the incident, when they later tried to contact them, they couldn't locate them. And with a lack of solid evidence or further leads, the attacker was never found and the case was closed. About a year or so later, on the morning of the 15th of July 1998, the couple left their house to drive to work. But almost instantly, Anna noticed that there was something not right with their car. There was a tube-like object wrapped in black tape stuck to the inside of one of the wheels. They couldn't really figure out what it was, but since they were both stressed and running late, they decided to deal with it later and got into the car and drove to work. Anna asked one of the chauffeurs at her work if he could have a look at the mysterious object hanging from the wheel. And after taking a quick look, he advised her to call the police, as he had no idea what it was. The object which had been attached to Anna's car turned out to be half a kilo of dynamite. The couple was in complete shock and had no idea who would want to kill them. It was also later revealed that a neighbor of Anna and Pad, two days prior to them finding the dynamite, had found a long, thin wire running from the couple's car down the whole length of the street to a spot which allowed a clear view of the vehicle. The neighbor didn't know what it was and had tossed the wire into a trash can. The police checked out the neighbor's story but were unable to find anything of note. A month later, on the 12th of August in 1998, a third incident would take place. Pad woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. When he reached the hallway, he thought that he could smell something strange. He looked around and tried to identify where the scent was coming from. And as he walked past the front door, he was stopped in his tracks by a hissing sound. He looked through the people to see if he can see anything on the other side of the door, but it quickly became apparent to him that someone had covered the view from the outside. Per was understandably terrified. He now realized what he could smell was gas and that the hissing noise was the noise you hear when dispensing gas from a canister. He ran back to the bedroom, woke up Anne and immediately called the police. On arrival at the property, the police discovered a long trail of gasoline which had been poured from the street all the way to the front door of Pad and Anna's apartment. Someone had also tried to set it on fire, but had failed to do so. A five-liter gas tank had also been placed right outside the door, with a plastic tube leading from the container to a crack in the door. The house was filled with so much gas that the couple had to be evacuated by the fire brigade via the balcony. The trail of gasoline leading outside the house had been poured to roughly the same spot where the wires leading from the car were found by Pat and Anna's neighbor. It was clear 
that they were dealing with the same person or persons who had tried to blow up the couple's car. Anna and Per were beyond terrified. They would often spend the evenings at friends' houses, just to get away from their own house as much as possible, but it soon dawned on them that they were no longer safe in Norway, not at least until the police made an arrest. And they would soon be given an opportunity to leave their home country. Per was offered a job as the general counsel in New York, a position which both of them were more than happy to accept. The police investigation had uncovered some potential suspects, but at that point they didn't have sufficient evidence to be able to prove any wrongdoing. But more about that later. After having worked in the States for a year or so, Per and Anne returned to Norway. In that time, no arrests had been made, and the police had even determined that the possibility of any further threats on the couple's lives was low as it had been over a year since the last incident. Unfortunately, it wasn't going to be a happy return to Norway for the couple. Not long after having moved back home, Per was diagnosed with cancer. Sadly, it was a really aggressive form of the disease, and he passed away on the 6th of May, 1999. After the funeral, Anne moved into her parents' house, where she would stay for a short while until she had figured out what she wanted to do. Anne's parents were Christian Orderud, who was 80 years old, and Marie Orderud, who was 83 years old. They still lived on the old family-run farm, but in a building called a Kårebolig. According to old traditions, when the farmer retires and the business is taken over by a younger member of the family who moves into the main house, the retirees move into a separate house, the Korbolig, and continue to live on the land, often for free. This particular house consisted of two stories with a porch which faced onto the woods at the back of the property. Just a few days after the funeral of Per, Anna's uncle, on her father's side, decided to drive down to the farm to see how they were holding up. But when he got there, nobody answered the door, even though Anna's car was parked outside the property. So he decided to go around the back of the house to see if they were sitting outside in the nice weather. But as he turned the corner, he quickly realized that something was terribly wrong. The glass back door had been smashed, and he could see that Anne, Marie and Christian were all lying lifeless on the floor. They had all been shot dead. Anne was lying in the kitchen, Christian was in the bedroom, and Marie was in the TV room. The police were called to the farm, and the murder investigation began. All three victims had been shot several times, and they had all received a shot to the neck, which had been fired from a distance of less than five centimeters. At least two different guns had been used, one 38 caliber and one 22 caliber, which indicated that the attack was carried out by at least two people. The detectives believed that Christian was shot first in the bedroom. Marie had also been shot in the bedroom, and according to the blood splatter evidence, 
It was believed that she had initially tried to protect her husband, but then fled to the TV room where her attacker had shot her again, resulting in her collapsing onto the floor. But she didn't die straight away from her injuries. Evidence showed that she lay there for hours, slowly bleeding to death. Anne had been living in the basement of the house, and it was thought that she had went up the stairs to see what the commotion was about and then tried to escape through the kitchen door. But her attacker had shot her before she could get out, and she collapsed and died by the kitchen table. The police quickly ruled out the possibility of the attack being a robbery gone wrong, since nothing appeared to have been stolen, and the couple's safe was completely untouched. Not much evidence was found at the scene, except for the spent shell cases and what was believed to be half a shoe print from a woman's shoe on the shattered pieces of glass from the broken back door. More evidence was found in the woods at the back of the house. A woolly sock was discovered, which was initially thought not to be connected to the crimes. That was until the garment was found to contain fibres connected to the triple murder. The detectives determined that the murderers had put socks over their shoes in order to mask their footprints. And that is likely why only half a print was discovered, as the sock was more than likely slipping off the female's shoe as she fled the scene of the crime. In the main building of the farm, which was a considerable distance from the house that Christian and Marie stayed in, lived their son and Anna's brother, who was also called Per, together with his wife, Veronica. It was Per who was now partially running the farm, since his father and mother had become too old to do it by themselves. And it was he who planned to take over the farm on a full-time basis in the near future. Per and Veronica hadn't noticed any strange goings-on during the night of the murders, and since they lived so far away, they hadn't heard the gunshots. They only found out about the horrible events which had taken place at their parents' house the following day when they were attending a dog show. According to witnesses, the couple were visibly distraught on hearing the devastating news. Around 10 days or so after the murders, the police were called to a wooded area after a concerned member of the public reported hearing gunshots. It turned out to be Per Orderud's sister-in-law, a Christine Kirkimo, who was carrying out some target practice with a shotgun. The police decided to bring her in for routine questioning in regards to the murders of her brother-in-law's parents and sister. Initially, she was only taken to the police station and questioned as a witness, but it wasn't long before alarm bells began to ring for the detectives. And soon enough, a search warrant was issued for Christine's home, which she shared with her boyfriend, a man called Lars Grönerud. They were both drug addicts and lived in a somewhat chaotic home, with guns and drugs hidden throughout the property. The police also recovered explosives and a 22 caliber pistol, which they suspected could be one of the guns used in the murders. However, after a ballistic analysis of the weapon, it was confirmed that the gun 
was not the one which was used in the murders. But according to the police, the bullets came from the same magazine which was found in the pistol. Losh was also taken in for questioning, but he denied having anything to do with the killings. However, Christine told the investigators that Losh owned a 38 caliber revolver, which he was very fond of, and had even given it a nickname, Lilligut, or small boy in English. Losh denied Christine's claims and said that it was in fact his computer hard drive, which he referred to as small boy. Despite this, and in an unexpected twist, the police focus shifted towards Anna's brother Per Orderud. They believed that he had a motive for murder. Per and Anne had a generally good childhood and upbringing on the family farm. But as they got older, Anne decided to move away and study to get herself a good education, whilst Per decided to stay and work at the farm. Despite working full-time, he too decided that he also wanted a higher education, so he started studying law. When his father became ill, Per had to take over most of the responsibilities at the farm, and was even asked by his father if he would like to take over the farm on a full-time basis when he would inevitably become too old or sick to do it by himself. Pat was happy to accept his father's offer, and together they agreed that he would purchase the farm for a symbolic fee in the future. So Pat stayed at the farm, and when he was about 30 years old, his parents moved into the separate house, the Korbuligen and Per moved into the main house. When he was 40 years old, a 21-year-old veterinarian intern, Veronica, came to work at the farm, and not before long, they fell for each other. They quickly became a couple, and Veronica moved into the main house with Per. His mother was happy for her son, but Per's father, Christian, wasn't particularly happy about their relationship. In 1997, Christian found the tax return papers for the farm, which Per had filled out and sent to the tax office. Per had written himself in as the owner of Orderud Farm, something that his dad did not agree with. So he contacted his lawyer and made an amendment to his and Per's agreement in regards to the amount of money that his son had to pay him in order to take over the farm. And this new figure was much higher than the originally agreed sum. He said that the reason behind his change of heart was because he didn't believe that all of his children's inheritance should go directly to Per. He wanted him to pay more to make sure that Anne was also giving what she was entitled to. But this decision left Per feeling that he had been betrayed by his father. He had worked all his life at the farm and was promised that he could take over the business for a small fee, only for his father to change his mind and demand a much larger figure which Per couldn't afford. In addition to this, the farm wasn't doing as well as it had done before and Per was forced into loaning money to keep the business functioning. Both father and son had a huge row about the new terms of the future purchase of the farm, 
and didn't talk to each other for about a year, despite living on the same land. Pat even took his father to court and won, since he could prove that there was a written contract between them in regards to the originally agreed fee. But Christian decided to appeal, as he knew that he hadn't signed any papers, and Pat's documents were later proven to be fake. During further interviews with Veronica's sister Christine, she admitted that she and her boyfriend Lars had provided Veronica and Pat with guns and had also helped them to plan the triple murder. Lars only backed up half of her story, stating that it was true that they had provided guns for the couple, but he claimed that he knew nothing about the murders. Lars could prove that he was home at the time of the attack, whereas Christine couldn't remember where she was. That was until a few days later when she claimed that she had been with a friend delivering magazines, which her mobile phone GPS system could corroborate. The friend in question was at first a little bit cagey and said that he couldn't really remember if she was with him that night until he eventually agreed that she was. But then his ex-girlfriend stated that Christine hadn't been with him but he had borrowed her mobile phone on the evening in question. Pat and Veronica told the police that they were at home sleeping when the murders took place, but according to their next-door neighbor, who rented a property on the farm, they were in fact not at home, as their car was not in the driveway and there were no signs of their dogs. And despite both Pat and Veronica both denying having anything to do with the attacks, all four were charged with the murders of Anne, Marie and Christian. Pat, Veronica and Christine all received 21 years in prison for accessory to murder and Lars was given two and a half years, which was appealed by the prosecutor. Pat, Veronica and Christine all appealed their sentences handed down by the court. In regards to the appeals lodged by the guilty three, much more information was about to see the light of day. For instance, Christine had a much tighter connection to the farm than what perhaps met the eye. When she was 22 years old, she gave birth to a baby boy, but due to her amphetamine addiction, the father of the child refused to let her see the baby as long as she was still using drugs. However, the boy was often allowed to spend time with his aunt, who was Veronica, so Christine would often be allowed to spend some time with her son whilst he was visiting Veronica at Pat's farm. An ex of Christine also claimed that she had asked him to get her some guns, to which he had agreed. And according to Christine herself, she brought the bag containing the guns to the farm to give to her sister. Veronica then inspected the weapons before putting them back in the bag and putting it down on the table but she put the bag down with so much force that one of the guns went off and fired a hole in the bag. Luckily, nobody was hurt as the bullet bounced off the table before striking a picture hanging on the wall. When questioned about this incident, Veronica denied it ever happened and said that there had been no guns at the farm. However, when she was presented with evidence of the gunshot from the kitchen, she broke down and admitted that she had been lying and now wanted to tell them what had really happened at the farm. According to her, she was sitting at the table wrapping Christmas presents 
as they were going to celebrate Liljul together, an early Christmas celebration, with Christine and her son at the farm, because it was agreed that the boy would be spending the holidays with his father. Suddenly, Christine walked into the room with a gun in her hand. She said she might as well end it all and shoot herself in the head. But instead, she aimed the gun at Veronica and pulled the trigger. The shot missed and a terrified Veronica ran out of the house to the barn where Per was. According to the forensic investigation, Christine's version of events, the gun going off inside the bag, ties in with the evidence, whilst Veronica's story didn't. However, Lars, Christine's boyfriend, backed up Veronica's statement, claiming that Christine was the one holding the weapon when the shot went off. And just to bring more confusion to the table, Per denied that the incident ever happened. He stated that there was no gunshot and that Veronica didn't run to the barn to seek his help. He made this claim in 17 different interviews until he one day decided to come clean and admit that what Veronica said was actually true. Christine also claimed that Lars taught Veronica and Per how to use the weapons and that was also when they stated that they wanted to kill Per's parents, his sister and her husband. She even claimed that the couple had discussed putting woolly socks over their shoes in order to mask their footprints. But Christine also possessed information which she couldn't have known without the aid of her sister or Per, which would in turn further link them to the murders. She knew the security code to the hidden alarms inside the house where Per's parents lived. Lars would also later admit that he did indeed have a gun, which he had nicknamed Lilligut. A gun which, according to him, he had sold to Per for 4,000 Norwegian kroner. He also said that he had taken the gun out to test it in the woods, and together with the police, they managed to track down the tree he had used for target practice. And there they found an empty shell case from a 38 caliber pistol, which matched the shell casings at the murder scene. They now had their murder weapon. When news of the murders began to appear in the media, a woman called the police to report a chilling incident which had happened five days prior to the murders. She worked as a phone operator and had received a phone call on the evening of the 17th of May 1999 from a man who requested the number for the Paust couple, which was of course Anne and her recently deceased husband Per. The operator gave him their number in Oslo and an address, but the man was not satisfied and began to rant about the fact that Anne was now back home after being abroad for some time. He even called her derogatory names such as bitch and cunt. He continued with his rant, claiming that Anne had done so many bad things in her life. Strange phone calls are unfortunately not that uncommon for phone operators, and the woman ignored what the man clearly wanted to get off his chest. She then gave him the phone number to the Ordurud farm instead, and he replied that he knew she wasn't at home, but would be there for the upcoming holidays, so that he would wait until then before he killed her. 
the operator decided that a line had been crossed and told him that he shouldn't say things like that, as she was sure he didn't mean it. But he told her that he did in fact mean it and would prove it to her. She would just have to wait and see. As soon as the phone call was over, the operator went straight to her boss and told him what had happened. But in the end, it was decided for some reason that the matter wouldn't be taken further. But when the news of the murders were plastered all over the media just five days later, the operator immediately called the police. The authorities went through roughly 4,000 calls that were made that day at around the same time of the assassinations, and in the end, they were left with 513 phone numbers, which had to be investigated further. And it was one of these numbers which was traced to the address of Veronica's and Christine's childhood home. Their mother still lived there, but at the time the call was made, she had been out of town, but the house wasn't empty. There had been a birthday party at the property for one of Veronica and Christine's sisters. That same sister owned a package delivery company, which she operated from the house, and she claimed that they would often call the operator to get the addresses of their customers. That also proved to be true, but the strange and threatening call could still have been made from the house. However, the police were unable to prove this. The police investigation also focused heavily on the half shoe print that was left behind at the scene of the crime. They searched far and wide to identify the make of the shoe, and finally, at a convention in Italy, they found them. They then managed to track down where these shoes had been sold, and two pairs of the same size had been sold on the same date, which just happened to be Lillejul, the early Christmas celebration day in the same area that Lars lived. The pair had been sold quite late in the evening, and that day Lars had turned up late for the planned Christmas celebrations. The shoes had even been paid for in cash and not by credit card, which made it almost impossible to trace the purchase back to the buyer. On the night of the murders, a neighbor who lived close to Orderud Farm was awoken in the middle of the night by his cat. Soon after this, he heard two car doors slam shut, and he thought to himself that it was a little bit strange, but at the same time, nothing to worry about, so he went back to sleep. But at around 5.30am in the morning, he was once again awoken by his cat, so he got up to let it out. It was then that he noticed a silver-coloured car parked somewhat strangely by the crossroads. This was a small village where everybody knew everybody, and the man didn't recognise the car, so he made himself a cup of coffee, which he drank by the window whilst keeping an eye on the vehicle. After a while, a woman appeared and walked towards the car, got in, and drove away. In truth, the car was actually parked in a strategic manner, as it was only about 500 meters or so away from the farm, and if you cut through the wooded area close by, the chances of meeting anyone on your way to the farm were slim to none. This sighting was reported to the police soon after the murders, but the police hadn't really paid much attention to the report. 
That was until pictures of Christine began to appear in the newspapers. The neighbor called the police again, stating that the woman in the papers was also the woman who walked back to the strangely parked car that morning. Christine denied that it was her and claimed that since her picture had been made public, there was a significant risk that these images had influenced people's memories. As time went by, more information surfaced. Anne had apparently expressed her own ideas for the farm. She wanted to cut the land up and sell it to build houses. And this, of course, could have been another motive for Per to try and get rid of his sister, as he believed that the farm belonged to him and nobody else. And it could have also been a motive for Christine, because if the land was sold, then she would lose the sanctuary where she was allowed to meet her son. One motive for Veronica committing the murders could be money. According to one of her ex-boyfriends, she only ever married Per for his money. So when she realized that the farm didn't actually belong to him, it may have been in her interest to get rid of the people who were keeping it from him. The police were able to trace the explosives that were used in the attempted attack on Anne and her husband. They were stolen from a group in Germany and later parts of these explosives were sold to Lars. As well as this, parts of explosives and wires were found at Lars and Christine's home. Lars claimed that the explosives belonged to Christine and Christine claimed that they belonged to him. The police had their suspicions that Lars had given the explosives to Pad as they were sure that he was the one who carried out the previous attacks on Anne and her husband, but they were unable to prove this. At the appeal hearing, both Veronica and Per's original sentence of 21 years would remain as it was. But Christine's sentence was reduced to 16 years and Lars received 18 years. Since it couldn't be proved exactly who pulled the trigger, nobody was sentenced for murder and instead all four were found guilty of accessory to murder. All four has since been released from prison after serving their time and in 2019, Lars passed away at the age of 61. The guilty four have always denied having anything to do with the murders and alternative motives have since been raised. Anne had been working with trying to restrict the amount of firearms on the streets and her husband Per had been involved in the Balkan conflict through his work with the government. One possible theory is, as far-fetched as it may sound, that the murders were carried out by the Yugoslavian Mafia. However, this theory has never really gained enough ground to gain any kind of credibility. What really happened on that day at Orderud Farm will probably never see the light of day. All that can be determined as a matter of fact is that three people were brutally murdered in their own home.